0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. All right folks here we are and i'm really excited about this week's host body so i'm going to get straight to the introductions today i find myself attached to Jay carlos menjabar of the excellent dial f for film podcast carlos how's it going
1: oh it's going well i'm really excited uh to be on the show thank you for having me and i'm so stoked to talk about the movies we're going to talk about today
0: yeah yeah me too I'm, I'm really looking forward to those but first it is the halloween season you this is actually the day before halloween this episode's going to be dropping. Have you been getting into the season? I know you've been doing a month-long celebration on your podcast.
1: Yeah, uh, my my whole goal this season, because I knew I was doing the podcast, I was trying to record the episodes for the podcast early enough so I would have time to watch uh, movies outside of the 1001 movies list that I do on my podcast. So I've, I've, I've watched about 20 to 25 horror films for the podcast, but outside of that, I was still trying to do 31 for the month uh, outside of that. And I've I've done okay. Um, maybe, i have like maybe fifteen that I've watched. So I'm a little behind, but uh, since I recorded most of the stuff early, I still have this whole week to to kind of catch up a bit and uh, and watch some of the other stuff that I've been wanting to watch.
0: I I feel you on that. I haven't been able to watch nearly as many horror movies as I want, but I'm gonna I'm gonna really really go for it this final week. Yeah, same. Uh, the the last thing that
1: I watched was uh, Night Tide. I don't know if you've seen that.
0: Oh yeah, that's uh, that's a really good one, Young Dennis Hopper.
1: Yep, I had never heard of it, and it came to uh, came uh, to my attention recently. And I checked it out. And I, I dig it so far, but yeah, I'm 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 super excited for this week. Usually, the last week is is the best one. I'm trying to I'm trying to branch out a little bit more and just uh, staying away from like classic stuff and just trying to watch horror more horror from uh, from other countries and uh, older stuff too, from like 30s and 40s and. There's just so much. It's just I, I'm trying to really throw the, this net so I can catch more of those movies that that I've missed.
0: Yeah, I always enter October with kind of a list of things I want to rewatch, and I, I try to balance that out with a lot of new to me films, so I'm not just watching the same things over and over again. Yeah, same. So before we open this note, you know, I, I give this intro where I talk about my head being surgically attached, and then I, I just completely ignore it once the show actually starts. I throw that away. So. <laughs> Uh, so our theme this week, the, the note we've been given, I'm calling Notsferatu. <laughs> because, well, you'll see why in just a minute. How about we just get right into the movies then? Yeah, let's do it. Notsferatu, reveal yourself to us. Professor Catalano is the world's leading authority on the subject. Did you search for vampires bring you to this? Vampires are everywhere. May you plunge into the finest abyss for all!
1: It was Nosferatu.
0: Yes, we summoned him, he answered, and he will kill again. What can we do?
1: Love, only love can kill him now. The love of the consenting virgin. The very moment he possesses her, he will die. Something he has sought
0: for a thousand years. First up, we're going to discuss Nosferatu in Venice from 1988, aka Vampires in Venice, which I think it's listed as on Tubi, or Prince of Night, depending on when, where, and how you saw it. Those are the alternate titles it was given. Nosferatu in Venice began life as a straight sequel to Werner Herzog's Nosferatu from 1979. In this film, Professor Paris Catalano played by Christopher Plummer, arrives in modern-day Venice to hunt down and finally kill the notorious vampire, whose last appearance was during the Carnival of 1786. In what must have been quite a casting coup at the time, Klaus Kinski returned as the titular Nosferatu, reprising his role from the 1970 film. Sort of. This is a movie I only discovered a few months ago when I was browsing through Tubi, and I, I knew I had to watch it. I have a group watch going on, and i thought it would be really great as a group watch but nobody seemed to really bite so i'm really glad i got to force you to watch this movie and <laughs> we can we can discuss it here i have to ask did did you do any research on this movie yet uh i i, I knew i i did look it up when
1: you first assigned it to me just a, just a little bit though I, I, d- I didn't find out that much i was wondering why uh klaus Kinski had hair uh, and that was one of the first like trivia things that came up. Yes. <laughs> but I, I I don't know much about the movie and I didn't even know this existed until you told me about it. So
0: yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about it till like six months ago or something like that. Wow. So really quickly, I, I'm not, I'm not one for content warnings all the time, but I really, feel like i should give one for this episode there's probably going to be a lot of discussion or at least a bit of discussion about sexual assault uh, on screen for one film and off screen for the other oh man i don't expect either of us to get too in depth or in detail about it but it's going to be impossible to avoid and i don't really want to blindside anyone with what could be some distressing talk coming up uh sorry if you do listen to the episode i sound much smarter than when recording it because i i do a lot of judicious editing (laughs) <laughs> no
1: worries, man. You're doing good.
0: Uh yeah, I mean it's easy on your show. All I have to do is just show up and you <laughs> you've done all the preparation. I just answer your questions <laughs> and throw in whatever else I yeah, written. it's so
1: weird like having the 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 role reversely like, now I'm now I'm guest. Yes. <laughs> it's just like I'm uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> the movie itself, um I'm not sure what you thought. I guess we can just get kind of right into it. I started this movie. And I really liked it for a long time. Like, I mean, th- I think the first half hour of the movie, I was like, oh, this is, this is really great. It has a really great mood. The music's really good. I had on my notes, I wrote down this, this soundtrack sounds very much like Vangelis. And it wasn't until I watched this movie twice. It wasn't until my next viewing. I saw the credit in the end credits that says music based on the album, the mask by Vangelis. So oh. <laughs> it, it has the music kind of has a little bit of a blade runner type synth feel. Yeah. And it's got a really good mood. The shots look great. Christopher Plummer is is really good in this movie. Uh, we'll get into it. He's not really that important to it, it turns out, but I really liked him in it. And then I think the film almost immediately falls apart once Klaus Kinski actually shows up in Venice. Uh, everything starts to get a little bit hard to follow. It stops making much sense. But uh, what did you think? How did you like this movie? So going,
1: so going into this, I wasn't expecting much. First of all, I didn't even know about the sequel. And second, uh, once I saw that it was an Italian production, I, I immediately lowered my expectations. But watch, <laughs> I, I think I feel the same way watching the movie. I was uh, captivated almost from the start. I, I really did love the look. It kind of had this gauzy look. I, I really did like the cinematography. Especially, there's a lot of scenes in Venice where there's fog and the street lights are on, and it looks amazing. Things get a little confusing, falls apart, especially because I think in the in the first half is trying to tell a sort of parallel story that takes place in different time periods. If I'm not mistaken,
0: yeah. Um, in the beginning, there's a lot of uh, flashbacks to kind of the last time Nosferatu who is called Nosferatu, I believe, in this movie. He's never called Dracula or Orlok. There's a few flashbacks to the history of the house. And there's like a story that one of the members of the family, like he arrives in Venice. He's staying with, um, they call her the princess. So I'm not sure how royal she is, but he's staying with his right. family. And uh, there's a history that there was a vampire at one point in the family that was buried in a tomb. And he's coming at the request of, this woman who is pretty sure that Nosferatu is buried in the family crypt and he's come to investigate. And there's a lot of scenes that are kind of intercut that show what happened in the past. Very, a lot of slow motion scenes. <laughs> yeah, there they really are. We we call this a sequel to Nosferatu and that's actually what it began its life as. The, uh, the writer was able to, he secured Klaus Kinski for the role. He was able to get a print, producer he started writing a script that would have been a direct sequel to Werner Herzog Nosferatu but it had a really really troubled production we can get into more specifics about it but it it seems like once Klaus Kinski actually arrived on set he demanded so many changes the first of all he refused to wear makeup for a while he refused to even wear fangs for the role so he just showed up with that hair that hair (laughs) is so (laughs) ridiculous it's a humongous like 80s main like mullet
1: yeah he looks like he's in like an 80s hair hair metal band
0: it, it, it's weird how he, he has like those two strands on either side like almost pigtails hanging over in his in front of his shoulders <laughs> yeah and and he's got a bald spot in the middle of it so <laughs> whenever he's shot from behind it's a little yeah uh, it's a little silly looking it it's such a weird look but yeah he just refused to wear any makeup at all i mean he's 60 years old he just didn't want to go through that again i i get it but it it makes for a weird look. And then he would demand changes in lighting. He would disrupt camera angles. He would refuse to listen to direction. He started to basically rewrite things himself, I think. It just sounds like they, I mean, Klaus Kinski is notoriously a nightmare to work with. He'd been in Italy for a while. So I'm sure they all knew that and just rolled with it. But it, it sounds like. The film went through a lot of changes. Yeah, I saw on
1: IMDb that he has an uncredited role as director, which makes a lot of sense from what you just said.
0: This movie has, I think on IMDb, there's listed four, yeah. or four directors. The original director was Maurizio Lucidi. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, he directed basically the crowd scenes of Carnival when Nosferatu shows up in Venice. Mm. But he filmed all that before Kinski arrived on set and um, the producer, Augusto Camenito, he thought he needed a bigger director and a bigger budget to make it a success. So he, he fired him and hired uh, Pasquale Squiteri, who rewrote the script. It sounds like in- extensively rewrote it. He said it in the future of 1996, and I have no idea why. Wow. <laughs> um, and he had been arguing with Kinski and Camenito. And uh, Cominito decided to keep Kinski, and so he paid the director and fired him before any scenes had been shot. So then they hired Mario Cayano, who had directed Kinski in uh, one of the Shanghai Joe films. I don't know if you've seen them, they're like Italian spaghetti westerns meet you know, kind of kung fu. They're entertaining, I mean, they yeah. are as entertaining as that that description sounds. The only like western that I've seen with Kinski is is it called Great White Silence? Oh, uh, yeah, the bit, the, the the Great Silence, I believe. The Great, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he's in one of the Man With No Name films, but just has a small part. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so you've got this list of a 1,001 films. I have seen less than half of those 1,001 films, but I've seen the, the Shanghai Joe movies, so. <laughs> wow, that's awesome, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then once, after, you know, firing all these directors and having to pay them, Kamenito rewrote the script himself, to match the new lower budget <laughs> the word is kinski thought that he was going to direct the film so when mario cayano came on he was just a nightmare refused to listen to him for the entire day and then cayano just kind of said "I mean, he's there's a documentary i watched called kinski in italy uh it's on youtube and mario cayano kind of the way he says it is well they needed kinski more than me so i just got in my car and left <laughs> and um, God. <laughs> after after that, Cominito decided to continue and direct the film himself. There was also, as a se- second unit director, he was actually a, a production consultant, Luigi Cazzi, who's done a lot of Italian horror films. He ended up directing some things as well. So there's a lot of hands on this movie, and it went through a lot of changes, which is reflected in how much of a mess the movie becomes after about half an hour.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it definitely shows <laughs> why we uh, didn't, really care for for the the ending of that movie and also it was it was hard to follow and then the the ending didn't um didn't i didn't really like the ending if if it really feels like it just kind of ends
0: there's a lot of arbitrary decisions in this movie which you know i'm not talking about the plot as much as i normally would because the production of this movie is is so much more interesting than the movie we actually got yeah the basic plot Christopher Plummer is this professor, Paris Catalano, who arrives in Venice and he says his life's goal is to hunt down and murder Nosferatu. And I'm not quite sure why Nosferatu is the one that is his great white whale, because he he talks in the movie about how there's vampires everywhere. And he gives this list at one point of all these ways somebody can become a vampire and it's very extensive. It he never once mentions being bitten by a vampire. It's all things like being born of illegitimate parents and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, it's really weird. So he shows up, they they hold a séance to, to find out where Nosferatu is. And that seems to wake him up. I'm not sure where he's supposed to be, but he seems to be on some kind of far-off island. And he he gets up, he comes to Venice, he kind of haunts the family, kills a couple of people. There's some showdowns, and then that's the end of the movie. Like, the plot is hard to describe and almost not worth describing at points.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting thing about the way that uh, the Nosferatu <laughs> character is portrayed in the movie in that it almost seems like he has superpowers. He's like the Superman of vampires. I don't know. Like, there's a lot of things that he can do, uh, more so than any other uh, vampire movie or Dracula movie that I've seen.
0: Not only is there that flashback where the priests try to i don't know what they're they're just shouting a bunch of latin at him so i guess they're trying to exercise him from the house and he just looks at them and they all fly out the windows oh yeah (laughs) by the way that happens twice in 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 the movie
1: where people fly fly out of the same window onto uh spikes
0: yeah (laughs) and there's a lot of slow motion in those scenes so i kind of feel like those those are the parts that luigi cotzi directed because he does a lot of slow motion (laughs) yeah and then there's another scene where Nosferatu flies and it's it, it's a very cheesy effect and so silly looking. Oh yeah, they're flying, I
1: think it's like at night and it's like a superimposed, but you only really see his, the top half of his body and it's it's really weird.
0: Yeah, it, it's kind of like a, <laughs> it, he's flying a little bit like Superman too. Yeah, yeah. I think and that's
1: when when I drew that comparison. I'm like this, this guy is like the Superman of vampires.
0: <laughs> I keep saying, I keep talking about how much a mess this movie is apparently Klaus Kinski being such a nightmare and not, there's a, there's some pretty nightmare stuff that I can get to in a few minutes. After six weeks of filming, Kamenito looked at it and he'd only directed about half of the script, but he decided he just couldn't continue working on the project anymore. So he, he shut the film down and decided that he was just going to edit together what he'd shot and release that as the movie. That's crazy. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense when you see this and how many things just happen randomly in the movie yeah like christopher plummer his life's goal is to kill nosferatu he has one meeting with nosferatu somebody is somebody is killed like it 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 goes badly but one try at it and he just decides well i'm leaving and he packs his bag and leaves the movie never to be seen again
1: yeah that's so yeah that is so weird that that he gives up so easily and it seems like he's the main character of the movie and then the movie shifts to to Klaus Kinski it just kind of goes away from that angle and becomes a completely different mm-hmm. movie also i was really i was kind of confused about it seemed like Nosferatu wanted to 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 to
0: to, to die right like, at, at first that's what they talked about that he had been wanting to die yeah in the beginning he they talked about how much he wants to die and certainly that's all he talked about in the 1979 original but then once he gets to venice he seems to not he seems to change his mind. Unspoken just like no, I think I'll fuck with this family for a little while and hey, that that daughter there is pretty hot. Yeah, it's
1: it, it gets the movie gets really really uh sexual <laughs> once he arrives in town.
0: Yeah, and this is kind of a crossover with your podcast cuz we talked about Nosferatu on your last episode. Yeah. And, and I made a joke. It was kind of a joke that anytime Klaus Kinski is shown being sexual or physically intimate with a woman on screen that wasn't in the script that's just him deciding to do that on the set and i I kind of said it as a joke researching this movie it turns out that that may be more true than i thought at the time which is is, which is where this might get a little bad uh this discussion might get a little distressing because a lot of those scenes were not written in the script like um barbara de rossi who plays helietta uh, the woman who call who writes to Doctor or Professor Catalano, mm-hmm. she she says in this documentary and uh, in other interviews that the scene where she's bitten by Nosferatu, he was supposed to just lean over and bite her on the neck, but as you see in the movie, he gets her like completely naked. They basically start having sex. That wasn't in the script, and in fact, she says she ran from the scene crying the first time because he. I don't even want to say what he did, but. Like it, it's a full on sexual assault is what happened. Oh my and, god. And it got so bad. But then that's continued. Like there's a scene where he he bites a woman on the street and it she's not very well established, but she is the wife of Doctor Barnaball, I think is his name. Yeah. He shows up. He's he's in through the movie throughout, but she's not really developed as a character, but he, he basically runs her down and bites her on the street. But that scene is filmed almost like a rape scene. Like he tears her clothes off while, while he's doing it. And it, it's, it's kind of like shocking in the movie. So it just seems like Klaus Kinski was going crazy. I know at one point it got so bad, the entire crew left the set and quit the movie. The entire crew quit and had a meeting with Kamenito where they demanded that either Kinski leave or they would all quit somehow Kamenito was able to convince them to stay and Kinski offered a public apology to them. But I'm not it doesn't really sound like things got better if especially if Kamenito just quit the movie halfway through.
1: Yeah, it's that 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 sex scene in the in, in the movie is really intense because she I think it's it is the Barbara Dur Dorossi. Kinski is really like groping her in in a weird way that doesn't seem like you know it's too specific. Yeah. To be something that'd be asked for by a director, not 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 that it's out of the possible the realm of, realm of possibility, but still, it just seems really off. And ever since we had that discussion about uh, Nosferatu and and uh, Johnny in, in in that film, uh, it did put that into my mind. I'm like, wow, that does not look right in any way. And he, and like I said, the movie and the second half, especially when Kinski you know, takes over the movie. He uh, it, the movie gets way more sexual than the first half. I I don't I can't even think of a, a, a sex scene or anything sexual in the first half of the movie at all because it, it, the the thing that was most jarring about the movie was that I was expecting something sleazy right off the bat and it wasn't. It seemed like really serious and I was really shocked to see Christopher Plummer uh, in in the lead role pretty much and 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 Donald Plasse's Pleasant is in it as well as a, I think he's a priest uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah.
1: there was this interesting like dynamic that was going on there and then the movie just goes off the rails uh, when it just becomes a, a sleazy sex horror <laughs> driven movie.
0: Yeah, well, Christopher Plummer has been in a few of these Italian movies. I um there's another movie from around this time I think just like the year after this came out. Oh no, sorry. Completely I'm I'm completely screwing up the timeline. About 10 years before this movie <laughs> called Star Crash. It's an Italian Star Wars ripoff. No. He's in that. He's like the the king of the universe or something like that. Um, (laughs) And he he only has a few roles. And he's in the the special features for the my friend gave me the Blu-ray a few years ago, and he's in the special features saying that anytime people offer him a vacation in Italy or he gets to the to shoot in Rome, he he considers it a vacation. He'll just take any movie that was shooting in Rome. That's so so cool. Yeah. And and he's great (laughs) in this movie. Like he has so much gravity in those early scenes yeah and donald pleasance you mentioned he's he's kind of a weird character it seems like maybe they were going to have more to do with him in a longer version of this movie or the full version of this movie but he's he's very funny because he's so he's very cowardly but he's also stuffing food in his mouth and complaining about the like the the heretical talk of vampires
1: it, yeah like he's so he was so against uh the them having the seance <laughs> yeah but he no one listens to him.
0: no and he's he's very funny at times cuz he's just shoving food in his mouth all the time but then yeah once Christopher Plummer leaves he has this um he gives him this walking monologue about how he is the protector of wandering souls and he's always going to stay in the house and he's basically taking down Christopher Plummer for thinking that he had for putting himself on a level with god thinking that he could destroy evil it's a really great piece of acting like he's really powerful in that scene uh, that i i kind of like i kind of wonder what the rest of the movie would have had with him because he doesn't he in the end doesn't really do anything except add a little bit of texture and it's great but it yeah like so many yeah. things in this movie it just doesn't add up to much
1: yeah it's really unfortunate because a lot of elements in this movie do work and this could have been a really great sequel don't get me wrong I, I i think i still enjoyed most of the movie that you know i especially since i wasn't expecting very much from it um yeah but there's a lot to 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 really get from the first half and there's some pretty cool scenes in, in, in the latter half except for probably the sex stuff but um there there are some things that could have worked and this is definitely an interesting you know sort of would this be considered an unofficial sequel to to Nosferatu because it's so different from from that movie and it really departs from it
0: I I would before I saw this movie I thought it was an unofficial sequel now I'm gonna say it's just its own thing because yeah. there are there's no connective tissue at all not only through characters but just the way he acts his name in the movie he's Nosferatu in this movie not no not Dracula and yeah, which is interesting because by this point
1: I, I'm sure that the the name and from the novel is in the public domain so there's you know free usage of that
0: yeah I'm not I'm not actually sure but I I would say that this doesn't count as an unofficial sequel anymore it's yeah i mean spiritually i guess because it it was written that way it was supposed to be his version of nosferatu but it it just didn't pan out that way and you're right until kinski shows up until kinski starts making it very uncomfortably sexual (laughs) yeah um, i i think it's great but i i think he has some good scenes early on before he arrives Like when he wakes up and he hears um, Helietta, no, it's not Helietta. We all think it's Helietta, but it's actually her adopted sister, Maria, who is calling to the count during the seance. He hears that and he comes through, he he comes across that, that like caravan or that, that little village, the group of Roma that all have bite marks. So he's like been feeding on them and they're, they're all like, um, they all kind of seem to worship him. And that's like, that's a really cool scene. I like that where they're all dancing and uh, around the fire and singing. And like, he just notices they all have bite marks and he's taken to a room where he, he feeds on this young girl who we, we see like- once again. oh, I, sorry.
1: I was just saying, don't we first see him when they're intercutting between the seance? Is that, is that, is that what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we see yeah. him come out of the, the crypt at that time. Right. But then when he ca- crawls out of the crypt, he's like walking down and he, he comes across that group of people that are all singing and dancing and i think that's a really cool scene i like the idea that there's like this just this group of people that worships him that yeah. he's been feeding on but not killing i think it, it it his performance in it is pretty good like he's klaus kinski is always klaus kinski he can give a commanding performance even in the worst movies even when he's like screwing everything up he's commanding to look at on screen yeah it's just a shame he's a monster in real life. Or he yeah, was. I know. <laughs> uh, what, what's one more thing I wanted to to mention about him, like about how weirdly uncomfortably sexual this movie is? So the the character of Maria, that he ends up spending a lot of the movie with, she's naked a lot towards yeah. the end of the movie. <laughs> she was originally supposed to be played by Amanda Cindrelli, but Kinsky ordered that she be fired because one day Yorgo... I, can, I can't pronounce his last name. I'm very sorry. Yorgo Voyages, mm-hmm. uh, who played Dr. Barnavol. His girlfriend visited him on set one day and Kinski ordered that he hire her as Maria. Just thinking about that is so awkward because he's naked with Maria for very mu- for like a lot of the movie. Or he's not naked, but she's completely naked. And their scenes yeah. are all very sexual. And there's a scene where Dr. Barnavol has to burst his way into the room and try and kill him. And she's just naked and like lying all over Koskinski. like that seems like such a, a gross and creepy power move, to say like I want your girlfriend to be the one who's like, making out with me completely naked for the rest of this movie. Yeah, I di-
1: I did notice that, and and it goes back to what we we're talking about. In the first half, she's fully clothed, and then the second half is like she's walking around and she has no clothes on. It's like completely, you know, it's a full frontal nudity throughout, even even when she's not uh, in any sexual scene with Klaus Kinski. It's so weird.
0: Yeah. Like I, I almost wish they hadn't cast Klaus Kinski in this movie. I don't think the movie would have been made without him. But if it had been anybody else but Klaus Kinski, I feel like they would have been able to finish the movie. And what we see of what the movie could have been is actually very interesting and really moody and really very enjoyable yeah agree like as we get it it's just it's such a mess i guess while he was in venice he told them that he loved to film at dawn it was his favorite time to film so i guess for like two months he would one or two months he would just get the second unit director he would force them to come out and film him just wandering around venice in the morning which is why (laughs) we get all those scenes of him like walking through the fog and yeah kind of bluish light I actually do like that. It, it's cool. They had 10 hours worth of footage Jesus at the end Christ. of it. And, and in fact, the movie that appeared at Sunday or not Sunday, Cannes, like it was announced to be released at Cannes and it was um it was something like 160 minutes and then it oh my god. They cut it down in it into like basically 98 minutes is what premiered at Cannes and now on video it's 94 minutes. For something that was only half done, they seem to have a lot of footage. Yeah, that's almost
1: like documentary like amounts of footage just for him you know just of him just walking of klaus kinski just walking around
0: so if anybody is interested there is that documentary on on youtube kinski in italy it's like a tv documentary produced for italian television unfortunately it's only the first two-thirds of it but the the middle two-thirds talks a lot about this movie which is is where i got a lot of my information and and wikipedia of course there's also it's on youtube There is another short documentary nine minutes long called Please Kill Mr. Kinski, and I would recommend everybody check that out. It's The director of this 80s movie starring Klaus Kinski called Crawl Space had such a terrible time with him that the the Italian producer and him went to the American producer to try and get them to fire Klaus Kinski, and they refused because Kinski was the one that's getting them distribution. So the Italian director or the Italian producer came to the director with a plan to have Mr. Kinski killed. And uh, the director had to talk the producer out of it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to watch this. It's, it's really funny. It's, it's only the director of the movie is kind of talking to the camera. And there's a l- couple of like behind the scenes clips cut in. It's yeah. very funny. It's only nine minutes long. It's on YouTube. <laughs> you got to check it out. Sounds it sounds awesome. I think we've kind of covered this one. Do you have any more thoughts about Nosferatu uh, in Venice? Yeah, I, I think I'm good in this movie. Um Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a,
1: it's a crazy combination of things, and just a whirlwind of you know production woes, like you mentioned, and it definitely shows on the final product. It's a bummer that there there could have been a, a better movie because it starts off uh, so strong.
0: You no, know, I completely agree. Like. I was prepared to apologize to you for this movie. And then in the first half hour, I was like, oh no, this movie is great. And then it just, it so completely falls off the rails. Um, Yeah, it really does. I actually, I actually watched it twice just to prepare for this because after my first viewing, I was like, I, I don't know how to describe any of this plot. So I've got to see this again, but I would not recommend that for most people. (laughs) I, I think you, you can tell maybe by what we've been talking about, whether or not you should watch this movie. I'm happy I watched it, but um, I don't need to see it again, I don't think. Yeah.
1: old people think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am or else they think I'm some kind of ghost
0: from the director of Night of the Living Dead Martin another kind of terror I just have a sickness I just need to drink blood Next up in our discussion of not Saratu films, we have 1977's Martin from George Romero, a personal favorite of mine. Uh, in this film, we follow Martin, a young man who believes himself to be a vampire, as he arrives in Pittsburgh to live with Tate Kuda, an elderly cousin. We learn that Martin has been sent to Kuda by a family elder, and that Kuda, a Lithuanian Catholic, also believes Martin is an old-world vampire referring to him constantly as Nosferatu, and safeguarding his home with all the old tropes of vampire lore, like garlic and crosses. None of these have any effect on Martin, and the two of them enter into an adversarial relationship, and Martin frequently mocks Kuda's belief in magic and superstition. Kuda seems to believe that Martin is his burden and the family shame, but is Martin actually a vampire, or is he just a victim of centuries of family superstition? The movie explores this question while also remaining tantalizingly vague about the answer now this was your pick um just a peek behind the curtain here we were originally going to watch shadow of the vampire but uh found out a little bit too late that that is out of print on dvd and not streaming anywhere so we um, we had to come up with a replacement and carlos chose martin which i said is a personal favorite of mine but i believe this is your first viewing
1: Yeah, it's my first viewing. I've always wanted to watch it. And I was looking up vampire movies uh, just to keep on theme. And Martin came up and I had a feeling it wasn't going to be streaming, but I did find a pretty good copy of this
0: on YouTube. And yeah, and then when this is the movie we're doing now. And I'm very happy. Like I, I was worried because I I really liked the pairing of shadow of the vampire with Nosferatu in Venice, just because it keeps it uh, very Nosferatu themed. Yeah. But uh I'm glad you chose this because this is a good movie and it fits that theme because it's like, is he a vampire? Isn't he Is it? like, plus he's called Nosferatu a lot in the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah. I thought, yeah. I thought that was funny that, that they used that name
0: <laughs> in Martin. I guess. What, what did you think? What did you enjoy the movie?
1: I, enj- I enjoyed it a lot. I'm so glad that, that I watched it. Uh, I wish I would have seen it before. But I really like what uh, Romero is doing in this movie. And it's I just looked up I was looking at the trivia and I came upon um, the tagline for one of the taglines for the movie, which is a vampire for our age of disbelief. And I think that perfectly encapsulates what this movie is, because you're unsure of, of whether Martin is a vampire or not. It seems like he is. And but it also seems like it's all in his head. And one of the things I really like in this movie is the very low budget kind of European uh, look to it. And the movie's intercut with, with scenes of black and white, which look like they could be flashbacks or memories. At a certain point, you start to get the impression that there's a unreli- unreliable uh, narrator uh, uh, as far as Martin goes, uh, just because it, doesn't, it, it seems like he may be a vampire, Maybe he maybe he 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 isn't, but the possibility that he is, just in a way that's different from what we've seen in the movies. And I think there's a part in the movie where where he says something about uh it's different than the movies, unless I'm confusing this with something else, but I'm pretty sure that 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 he says that. And I I like that play of is he or isn't he? And it it really there's so many layers to this movie as well that that I really appreciate. And I mean, there's just, this was, yeah, I really liked this movie. It was great. I I enjoyed it a lot.
0: Yeah, no, you talk about the look of the field, the low budget look. And George Romero, he's not always like known for his visual style. He's, he's known as a, as a guy who puts a lot of themes into his horror films. Uh, Maybe he's known for the gore, especially the stuff that Tom Savini brings to his movies. People never really talk about his visual style because he's got a very, I mean, he comes from industrial films like commercials and, um, PSAs and television work. So it's not, it's not like flashy cinematic all the time. But I, I think he has a really great eye for location and setting, especially in this movie, because when they get to Pittsburgh, where, you know, it, it's a Romero film. So it's in Pittsburgh, everything is industrial, urban, and rusting. Everything looks run down. And ev- like it just adds a real loneliness to the film. And it echoes Martin's, because Martin's main like almost aside from murdering women and drinking their blood, Martin's main thing is loneliness, how alone he is in this movie and uh, alienated. He is from this family member of his, I, I just watched it and I, I love the look of this movie. And there's something I think, I think low budget films are better at than Hollywood films is giving a sense of place and time because in a Hollywood movie, you know, things like advertisements it it would be product placement we'd see whatever we'd see them drinking whatever soda had given the production money in this one they're doing with whatever they have in their house like it's on real locations found locations not sets that have been built so it really kind of like it feels like a lived in movie, like a real world. Yeah,
1: it really does. And going back to what you're saying, yeah, the, the, there is a sense of alienation in the cinematography and direction. And it it does fit perfectly with Martin's character. He's a, he's an, he's definitely an outcast, uh, someone who's been told he's something that in, term, in their terms, uh, kind of he's been told that he's a certain way where it is possible that maybe he isn't, but because he's been told this thing so long that he kind of, just goes into it and that's the thing he becomes for the movie uh we never get real answers and it's it's left mostly ambiguously and and that's something i really like because it almost it almost seems like the the movie itself is a parable to 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 something else it's not just about vampires but about other uh, other things about uh family life and 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 how that has an effect on people and and what creates uh monsters, and it all starts from from the home life and I think that there's a lot of that in there, and there's so many i think that the 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 woman that's with uh what's his name
0: kuda yeah the um the grant kuda's granddaughter
1: yeah she's also i think she's like an. uh she was orphaned as well, and it's about all these people that have been separated or damaged by their families and and that's something that that that's really captured well. In this film
0: yeah that, that that's a really great point um because there's a scene also where kuda is trying to explain the family history to his granddaughter and he he's going through this uh family album and he's talking about the history and it sounds like it's a, it's it's a he calls it a family curse like they're not bitten they're just they're born as an asferatu. yeah and he says that there were nine of them in the family and there's only three left it it does beg the question like because it, it you're right those flashbacks look like they're to some eastern european past martin says he's 84 years old i think his birth year is supposed to be 1892 so there's all these flashbacks and it it is it is like where it begs the question is he really this old or is this just something the family decides oh that's a bad child they're an aspiratu and they basically hound them they don't actually seem like they're trying to kill the family but they or kill the vampires but they they treat them like a burden and they shuffle them around to different family members i'm not quite sure what what their method of dealing with them is but it seems like they do just make them outcasts in the family and he mentions that one of them took took her own life i think is that i couldn't tell if he was talking about the vampire or somebody who had a vampire child took their own life
1: yeah i i don't yeah i don't remember either but i i know what you're referring to
0: it does definitely does have like a nurture or nature aspect to this movie. And, you know, George Romero, his movies always have more going on than just the horror aspect. There's always a metaphor that's being explored. And another one I think is is really, I think the family one, like you really hit it on the, the nail on the head. I think that's that's very much what this movie is about. But there's another undercurrent to this movie, just an undercurrent of decay, uh, decay of the spirit, of the flesh, of infrastructure and systems government and religion everything we see is a little run down until he goes out to the suburbs sometimes those are like look okay but everything that we see it it seems to be falling apart like there's a scene where they go to church and it it looks like it's in an unfinished attic above a store or something oh uh, yeah (laughs) and the priest uh the father is actually played by george romero he mentions in the beginning that uh, of his scene that they need to rebuild the church, and then a deacon comes up and he's urging all of the parishioners to go home and look for things that they can sell to to give money to the church. Tom Savini has a small role in this, and he's a lot of his scenes talk about how he needs to get out of Pittsburgh because there's no work anymore. Yeah, um, there's a dinner scene where Romero comes to George Romero uh, comes to have dinner with Cuda, and he mentions that his predecessor left because he had cancer. So there's just like every scene there's a an intonation that things are rotting and falling apart and that everything like systems are failing people and everybody's just losing hope everywhere
1: yeah that 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 church scene is so uh jarring because when they cut inside there's like nothing on the walls it's so bare uh everything like the the room itself looks like it's off center yeah it's just really it's really weird yeah you you normally don't see shots like this of like churches I think they're in the middle of like a, a remodeling of it but obviously they can't afford it just because of how run down it looks and
0: yeah that was actually that church was an actual church that had just burned down oh uh, wow which is like which it goes back to what I was saying about how the movies like low budget movies give a real sense of place and time because all of the locations are found like that church the the house where Kuda and Martin and the granddaughter live is actually the house of the sound man. All of the decorations, like he lived with his mother and all of those religious paraphernalia and all the direct decorations are actually what his mother had in the house. Oh wow. So it's it's all real places. Like it just and you can tell, it comes across in the movie how real yeah everything feels, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So go, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. I, I was just going to
1: say that another thing that the movie uh, delves in with uh, is the movie has a lot to do with uh, mental illness too, which uh, relates to not just Martin's character, but some of the other characters in the movie, especially the the woman that uh, Martin has an affair with the older woman. Can I mention the ending?
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I guess I should say at the beginning, we're going to spoil these movies. <laughs> um well she ends up committing
1: suicide uh martin finds her and the reason that that kuda uh ultimately kills martin is because he thinks that he he's that martin's responsible and obviously uh, as far as we know he's not um but also there's no real uh we never get a glimpse of uh you know that character's life really so we don't know much based on that but uh, once Kuda finds out that that, that she dies, um, he thinks that it's Martin's fault, and without much without much evidence, he uses this to rid of Martin once and for all <laughs> uh, by putting a stake through his heart.
0: Yeah, that, it, it's a really shocking, abrupt ending. And you're right; we don't get into her head very often, but you, we we can tell she's very sad because she's drawn to Martin mainly because Martin doesn't doesn't talk much and he doesn't seem emotionally judgmental like she says that that he doesn't judge so she's comfortable and she just is constantly talking to him and martin's never really saying much until they they start having the affair after they they sleep together the first time she just starts crying and won't explain what's going on They have a couple of scenes where she's kind of talking we get the idea that she's just very unhappy in her life and yeah, yeah. M- there is mental illness there it seems um, at least clinical depression clearly yeah in vampire films like in in dracula and nosferatu the vampire always is seen as bringing plague and madness with him uh in this movie it really seems to just be waiting for him like this seems like like the place he had to end up almost yeah it
1: it also seems like the plague and madness is already in place like the environment is so bad (laughs) yeah That he's like the only Rational thing in an irrational world.
0: Yeah, there's like all these scenes where we see, like at at grocery stores, like there's a couple of scenes at a a grocery store where women are shown coming out and they're just harassed all the time. And there's this there's this biker gang that shows up a couple of times. They just like kind of drive up and down the street. It looks like that just seem to be giving everybody a hard time. Uh, There's a scene where so. In a lot of movies, the the affair with the married woman, which is is Martin's first time. This is Martin's first time with a woman consensually. Like we can't, we shouldn't gloss over that. He is yes. he is a, a rapist. In a lot of movies, it would be seen as something that helps him. Like it would help him become centered. Maybe he would stop feeling the urge to kill. <laughs> but it's very clear, like he he isn't eating people while he's having this affair and it's really getting on, on him. Like he calls into the radio show and he's telling the DJ how he's, he's going to start making a mistake because he's so shaky. He hasn't fed in so long. Yeah. So he goes out and he kills a couple of homeless people. And mm-hmm. so I, the, the movie is, is he is a sympathetic character. John Amplis in this movie He just seems like sad and lonely and sympathetic but the movie never makes him redeemable the movie is clear that whether or not he was he is a monster by birth or was made one by his family he is a monster in this movie
1: yeah he there's a you know he does really awful things in this movie but when he's not engaging in that he seems very innocent and and really seems like the victim um outside of you know murder and, and rape and all that stuff. Uh, but when, especially when he's around Kuda, Kuda just like beats down on him. The, you're a vampire, you're a monster, you're awful, uh, a component of that. The, the, he really hammers the, the religious aspect of, of this. And I think that in, in, in this movie, they sort of use the, the tag as of Nosferatu and vampire as a way to ostracize the oddball in, in, in their families. And they use uh, they use religion as the the way to in, to enforce that and, and uphold all those beliefs. But as that as as we know from 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 Martin calling into the radio station where he tells the DJ um, that the vampire is not what you think and that it's different from the movies and that there is no magic in this world, even if it's if it's not good magic that that the the thing about vampires is it's completely not what people expect that it's a completely different dynamic than we are led to believe and uh the dj refers to him as the count uh when he calls in but i, I do think that the the there's so many layers to this movie and in they they're so well intertwined i think it's it's a really well written movie and it's so unexpected too
0: yeah like to speak like speaking to that unexpected bit there's a scene after martin kills the homeless people where he breaks into a um a thrift shop to get new clothes because he's got blood on all, all of his and he sets off the alarm and the police have come and chase him and while he's running from the police he runs through a drug deal and the police get involved <laughs> in a, a shootout and there's stunts yeah and at one at one point you think like well this was added because they needed some action and it, it's going to give them like A chase scene, a shootout, some some gore, and some stunts. But in another way, it is very much just a a symbol that this movie, or this movie is set in a world that is crumbling and that has fallen into madness, because everywhere that you go, there is something illegal or immoral or deadly going on. And the it kind of ends. I, I think it's kind of a funny way it ends, where they they all end up killing each other, and Martin just like stands up and walks away. And yeah yeah it, but it, it's in in one way it just looks kind of random and unnecessary and another way it really it really speaks to the theme of the movie and how everything is is falling apart did you notice i don't know if you noticed in that scene the the, the guy who gets hit by the cop car and rolls over the car that's tom savini with a beard oh so he's on here twice <laughs> yeah he did he did make this is his first movie with george romero he did yeah the, the special effects and uh, stunts in the movie
1: oh nice yeah that that, that scene yeah that, that scene really it, it, it fits Romero's theme of urban decay and it's funny it's just it's kind of funny how the action of the characters just get thrown into that world that's going around them and it's also curious that Martin doesn't it doesn't. You would think that this is, you know, his final scene where he goes out and and he gets killed by his own family member. That's the, you know, the the the, the final, you know, stake in his heart is 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 given by someone who, uh, in 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 better circumstances, should be a safety net of comfort, but is not.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I think there's a scene earlier we need to talk about because Martin. Like Martin's very methodical. He does seem very careful in all of the killings he does. The first one we see is on a train, mm-hmm, yeah. And and he we see him how he does it. He he basically drugs the women so they don't fight too much, and then he can kind of like drink their blood. And uh, he calls it sexy stuff. <laughs> <And> it's <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it that's never shown. We see him get naked with the women and laying with the women, but it it, it is still like an uncomfortable insinuation. And, um, we see another scene where he's picked out a woman and he finds out that her husband's going to be, yeah. and he breaks in and she's having an affair and there's another guy there. And it is, a, it's such a tense scene. It goes on for a while where they're, they're like, the guy is chasing him through the house. Like Martin immediately like hits him with the hypodermic needle. But until the guy, the drugs take effect, the guy is chasing him around the house. And there's a really a very tense cat and mouse. Where he's like he's trying to stop them from co- talking on the phone. He's setting traps to like lure him out of the house, and then he can lock the guy outside. It, it's kind of like that Hitchcock thing where you, you like with psycho or frenzy, where in one way, you want the bad guy. like you don't want the bad guy to be caught because you're he's compelling in a way. But it's so tense and queasy at the same time because this this poor woman. And you think about how terrifying that entire scene would be from their eyes.
1: Yeah, that it—it uh, it almost seems too like that that scene in the scene at the beginning. It doesn't seem like Martin's very good at what he's doing because he struggles a lot. That that the first scene I think happens uh, over the the opening credit, um, and, and it it doesn't come as easy. You know, the sedative doesn't really work as fast as he wants it to, and I think a few times uh, he has to re re redo it uh uh, give them more uh, more of the that sedative to to really put him down
0: well he he's good enough at it like he's certainly good at the cleanup he knows he knows what he's doing he's just maybe not he's maybe not the most physical and so he stumbles a little bit so we talked about like whether he's a vampire or not and we get to that ending and we're still not completely sure because he he is staked by kuda but one thing like in the in that train scene, we get the first of what are going to be many flashbacks or memories that are in black and white. And it's never clear how much we can trust those because at one point, the way that they're shown in the train scene is before he opens the door, he has a flash of him opening the door and a woman embracing him, like welcoming him as a victim. And then he opens the door and it's nothing like that. The woman isn't like dressed in a flowing nightgown. Yeah, she isn't incredibly beautiful and makeup on her and waiting for him. She's coming out of the bathroom. She just flushes the toilet and comes out and she's got a face mask on. So there's always a juxtaposition between what he expects and what reality offers. And I think that might be the first clue because that memory is a fantasy. Like it's how he fantasizes his next kill is going to go and it doesn't go that way at all. It immediately becomes more, I don't want to say dirty, but just more human like there's like all of the gross stuff that comes with killing a woman so the flashbacks what what i wanted to get to yeah is all the flashbacks look like they're supposed to be in romania like in the early 1900s maybe when martin Mm -hmm. martin looks is the same age he has a different haircut but there's like old cars there's villagers with pitchforks and like torches chasing him
1: yeah yeah
0: but then later in the movie when cuda calls a priest over to exorcise martin there's a flashback to an earlier exorcism scene and martin has the same haircut that he had in those earlier flashbacks that are supposed to be in the 1800s so he's he's kind of wearing the same outfit has the same haircut and his father from those earlier flashbacks is there but he's very clearly mm-hmm. in a modern bathroom there's there's electrical outlets there's modern yeah. electrical fixtures there's linoleum tile and modern plumbing in the bathroom so it's it's not in the 1800s or the early 1900s, which I think is also another, another either a clue or a red herring, however you want to read this movie, that Martin is actually just mentally ill. He's not, he's not really a vampire.
1: What I really like about those black and white scenes is that it's becoming clear as you were talking about it, that it's less less memories than it, 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 it there. Are, I'm sure there's, there's tinges of memories thrown throughout, but it's more fantasy than anything. But I, th- I do like the way that they're shot and there's really st- like a contrasty, uh, inky black and white, like the blacks are blacks and the whites are whites in this scene. And I think it's a sharp contrast to the movie itself, where there's a lot of gray areas and a lot of uh, uncertainty in the movie. And I think these, these uh, scenes, uh, these flashbacks, dreams, fantasies, whatever they are, sort of what center martin's character and it's because he has so much instability instability in um in his in his real life and in the at least in the modern setting of this story
0: so apparently george george romero wanted to film the entire movie in black and white i'm not sure i would have liked that I mean, I'm sure the movie would have been great because the movie is great, but I, I like the contrast of those scenes so much. I like me too. Yeah. I like the color of this movie. I want to talk a little bit about the acting like John Amplis in this movie, for one. George Romero, it's what happens with a low budget filmmaker. He has he clearly cultivates like a family of people he likes to work with. I don't think he has. I think one complaint that I can make about most of his movies is that. There are a lot of people in the movie who just aren't really good for their roles, or aren't aren't as compelling on screen as you would like. Mm -hmm. I think John Amplis in this movie is he's really great at just exuding alienation and kind of a little bit of simple-minded confusion. Like you talk about, we talked about Kuda berating him all the time, but he also in the first one of the first scenes says that he hears he's an imbecile can you he's like i hear you imbecile can you talk that there's like this implication that he's just considered he's just considered developmentally disabled by the rest of the family which may be why they decide they're just going to call him a nosferatu and alienate him but i i think he does he has a great look in this movie he's just got this this um this very kind of innocent expression all the time where yeah that that you kind of like you, even in in some of the, the kill scenes where you feel like he's he's just being dragged along by something he doesn't quite understand, I, I think he gives a, a really good performance in this movie. Yeah, he
1: he really is great. He he has everything you mentioned. He he has a, an awkwardness uh, to him. The way he just kind of lumbers around and moves uh, from scene to scene. Some scenes he chooses not to speak. Other other times he does. There's narration too that, that that's really well uh dictated i think to fit the, the character and yeah he i john Amplis uh was in creepshow and he plays the 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 skeleton uh monster thing in that i think
0: yeah i, yeah. I you know i i've seen creepshow a lot i've never picked him out but he is he is in that
1: yeah he's the he's the um, he's you he, he's in the in the co- in the skeleton costume when he serves the the uh, the head on the platter. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that's the main picture on the IMDb and then I looked into it and yeah, he plays whatever that thing is in the movie. Okay. But yeah, he, he was really good. And uh, I, I think, yeah, he, he, he fits perfectly into the, that kind of style of Romero, low budget um, in the same way that, uh, what's his name from Night of the Living Dead, uh, Ben? is that Man. his name yeah yeah and the same way that he plays that role that lead role perfectly in that movie
0: george romero really w- originally wanted the vampire to be an elderly vampire in this movie
1: yeah
0: uh but changed it once he saw janet john amplis on stage in something i, I didn't look to see what that could have been so, so to speak to kind of like how george romero cultivates a family john amplis didn't act for him again until day of the dead but he was a casting director, makeup artist, and a stand-in on Dawn of the Dead. Ooh, so nice. He, like, so he went from acting to, to casting. And you you get this like through the movies that George Romero directs. We see, of course, actors re- reappear every once in a while, but people take on all these different roles because he's just doing it for so cheap. In fact, the budget for this was originally listed as $250,000, but the producer later admitted it actually only cost $100,000. He just he didn't want people to think they could get a movie for that cheap. So he he told everybody it cost more. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> but um you get you get all these other things like um around the time of Dawn Dawn of the Dead, a lot of the people that worked on George Romero's films, and including Tom Savini and um Joe not Joe Polito, Joe I can't remember his name, the the military, like the crazy military guy from Day of the Dead, and a bunch of some other actors and and like behind the scenes people they just kind of got together with some pocket change and for a while like over weekends made this movie called effects that in, it was released in 1980 so it's pretty interesting it's on uh tubi as well oh nice um, but i like you you see him bringing together these people who all just kind of like shift roles and do whatever needs to be done to make the movie work and that's another thing that i really like watching about this movie is i just imagine people they're living in the houses that they're shooting in. They're all doing whatever needs to be done to make the movie. They're just making it all work and it comes together so great, but also the, the idea of being there in the seventies with them, like in that sort of community, it just like, it, it seems so appealing to me.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely do like the, the, the style that, and just kind of added to the, Romero brings to his films. They're, they're unlike anything really that, that, that we see in horror, uh, then or even or even now it's so regional it, it feels like a different thing you know a lot of his movies being set in pittsburgh or in that area
0: rural pennsylvania i want to make a, a quick aside here about john amplis he was in this movie in 1980 called toxic zombies That mm. Mm. i is one of the scariest things from my childhood <laughs> I mean, like i watched it i was at a cousin's house yeah and, and it, they had an hbo and they were or not even HBO it was they just had cable and I didn't have cable and they were watching horror movies and I had to leave the room and stay in the, in the hallway. I was, it was before I liked horror movies. I was very young. And so I just remembered seeing the beginning of this movie and hearing the rest of it. And for years it terrified me. It is on Tubi. Yeah. I just but, saw that. I was like, I need to watch this. <laughs> or you can go and watch it on YouTube as it's the USA commander USA groovy movies. Oh. Which, is, which is actually how i saw it back then in the yeah. 80s it's terrible i watched it again recently but it it, <laughs> it it gave me that like the opening It gave me that like oh god this movie this is the one that scared the crap out of me <laughs> um, so i just i have to say i don't i don't know it was just something about it in the beginning yeah of course i was young and i didn't watch horror movies so it's like it, it's another regional really like low budget movie yeah can't wait to check it out. I love, I love me some bad movies. One thing I found out about this movie, well, here before I go on, do you have anything else that you want to say or any more thoughts on, on Martin? On
1: Martin, no, it was it was just a great, surprising movie, and I'm so glad I finally got to watch it. It, it really it was, it's an incredible, underrated uh, vampire movie, and I, I think I mean, there's this weird thing with like certain, there aren't that many, but like, what's the Nicolas Cage vampire vampires kiss? yeah there's that and there's a recent one from i think 2016 called the transfiguration which kind of play on similar themes of is the main character a vampire or not is it, what's going on i think the transfiguration is sort of like a, a spiritual um successor to that and it, it has the same kind of dark undertones and and it's a really good movie i think it's on netflix still but it's about a a, a boy who may or may not be a vampire as well and i i just really like that 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 kind of idea of where where do mon- monsters come from and i think that's what the these two movies are trying to explore but i i, I absolutely loved martin
0: uh yeah transfiguration was a good movie i would definitely i, I mean i endorse that comparison it's, it, it was good <laughs> it was I'm not sure where it's screaming let me see if i can find really quick uh it looks like it's on might not name. be on
1: netflix anymore because I, I watched it on there the first time but that was years ago
0: yeah no it's not in, it's on sling tv you can get it with a premium subscription on amazon you can rent it from other places so
1: oh yeah i'm but, sure it's it should be available
0: yeah no that was a that was a good movie um yeah i uh george romero has said that this is his personal favorite movie of his i i i mean i don't think anything beats dawn of the dead for me that is a monumental achievement yeah um, it, I just i love that movie so much but martin is if not tied with it a very close second i think martin is just really great it's a compelling movie it has it has some subject matter that is kind of tough not for everybody but it isn't it isn't graphic in a gross way there is blood there is nudity i mean it's gross what he's you know implied to be doing but um I, it's just so compelling and it has such a a wonderful feel like the, the look of the movie and the feel of the world even though it's all decaying is just captured so beautifully that i it, it it's one of my favorites. Um yeah, yeah, i totally agree with that. I
1: I wish i i really want to own this but it, i i've been looking up the dvd and it's super expensive, it's like
0: $100. I know. Places, so yeah. I found out i i, I mean i've loved this movie. I found out that there is a european like dawn of the dead there's a european version of this movie that was recut by dario argento Ooh. and given a new score by goblin nice and it's titled wampier i never knew this i have some goblin compilation cds and it has music from wampier and i didn't know that that was an alternate soundtrack to martin i like Oh, that's music. nuts i like the music in this i have the score on vinyl yeah um, like a lot of the music is is kind of atonal like weird there's like grunting on the soundtrack and stuff. Yeah. But the main theme, I think, is really beautiful. So it was released in Europe as Wampier and re-edited by Dario Argento. The only thing I know that the re-edit does is it places the flashbacks at the beginning of the film. So the story is told in chronological order. And that doesn't oh. that doesn't actually sound like very appealing to me. Yeah, same. <laughs> but um but i really want to see it now. And I looked it up and there is an arrow blu-ray from 2010 that looks like it's still available in the UK. Like I found it on Amazon UK, but it would be like $40 or something like that. And it has both cuts of the movie, which I'm I got to admit, I'm considering. I really want to I want this on Blu-ray, but I also am interested yeah. in seeing that recut.
1: Wait, so the Arrow the Arrow version has both versions? Yes. Oh, I have to okay, I'm going to have to look that up. But it
0: doesn't <laughs> it doesn't appear to be available here. Like I know it yeah. was a UK company primarily. Yeah. But, um, it's not on Amazon or anything, but amazon.co.uk has it. Maybe I'll oh. edit that out. Amazon doesn't need a plug, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you can find it out there. Yeah. Um, and the original cut of this movie was two hours and 45 minutes long. Yeah, there, I, I listened to the commentary. I listened to the commentary when I first bought this, but I started to listen to it again just before recording to see if like I got any cool tidbits romero on the commentary says that it is the greatest tragedy of his career that the footage for martin was lost he makes a plea on the commentary saying someone out there must have the footage please if anybody knows where it is they'll pay anything for it
1: <laughs> that's crazy that's a that's a lot that's like almost over an hour of of of, of that movie that's gone
0: yeah i'm not it, it would have had a lot more more of Cuda giving like vampire lore yeah um, some more with arthur the uh tom savini character i i I am interested in seeing it i think the movie is kind of a perfect runtime right now for what the story is for what it's telling yeah yeah definitely yeah one last little bit of trivia that i i may cut out because i don't know how dark i want this episode to get (laughs) but um this was filmed the year before richard case or richard chase started his uh murder spree and i'm not sure if you know if you're familiar with Mer- richard chase he's a serial killer uh-huh. um he was called the sacramento vampire because oh, <laughs> because he would uh he would well basically do a lot of the stuff martin does in this movie where he, he killed ended up killing six people but he would he would like drink their blood and cannibalize them and have sex with their corpses oh god <laughs> and he started that he started that the year before or he started that like the year after they filmed this movie but around the time the movie was released so it's not like he was inspired by it yeah like like something in the air like those weird synchronicities with real life and art yeah it feels especially eerie with this movie how much this movie is is just in a a you know the landscape that it is um yeah it's
1: so crazy just the parallel to to to, to actual things that happen
0: (laughs) yeah and like it's not it's not really i mean there's not like a lot he didn't have martin's uh i i don't know if he thought he was a vampire i I didn't read too much into it and Mm -hmm. he didn't didn't, like have martin's methodology it's just like it's such a weird thing that i i i may like i said i may edit it out because i don't want this episode to get like super dark and it's yeah just in the middle of a movie in a a podcast where we're just talking about movies and kind of yeah few jokes to talk about this (laughs) It felt like that does sound crazy, worth bringing up right now. Uh, Okay, so those are our discussions. We're going to take a really quick break and come back with our top five of the week. Okay, we're back and our top fives this week. We're going to be talking about our top five vampire films and uh, really excited to hear what you've chosen. So Carlos, why don't you go ahead and go with your first pick?
1: Yeah, um, so they're in no particular order, but uh, I have uh, What We Do in the Shadows, which is a very funny mockumentary, just uh, oh. think Spinal Tap, but with vampires Then. <laughs> I, I really like the the. There's not just one kind of vampire. They're all kind of. They have this unique kind of look, and they all kind of relate to to vampires in
0: past films, based on that look. Uh, yeah, what we do in the shadows. I, I need to see that again. I saw it the once, and really loved it. And have you been watching the show? Because my wife and I, I don't. I don't want to say it's better than the movie, but it's. It's so much fun, and it just gets better and better with every season and episode.
1: Yeah, I haven't watched the show yet, but I definitely do want to watch that.
0: Yeah, it, I, would, I would say check it out. It's worthwhile. And it, at the, in the beginning, I kind of was like, oh, but this movie was so good. I, it, it just felt odd seeing the TV show with different characters. Yeah. <laughs> it, and eventually, it, it really, really finds its own voice and becomes laugh out loud hysterical can't wait to check it out yeah it it, it looks great so my my first pick i'm just gonna go with what we just talked about i'm gonna say martin martin is definitely in one of my top is definitely in my top five of vampire films um i i mean we've already talked about it so i don't really need to say much more about it but it it's great everybody check it out if you can it's on youtube I, I almost
1: put this movie in my top five because it's really, really good. Um, but just because it's I, it's my first time and I just watched it yesterday, but it, it is definitely great, and I can see this moving up into the into my top five vampire movies. I love Martin; it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so my uh, next movie that I have on here um, is Blackula. I love exploitation movies. Uh, this one's a lot of fun, and it's uh, about an African prince that gets turned into a vampire by Dracula, uh, and it's set in L.A., which I love. I, I love any time I get a movie set in L.A. In the, in, in the 70s. There's this distinct look to it, and I really love that. And this movie is is really cool, and it's, it's a lot of fun, and I think William Marshall is great as uh, the lead in this movie.
0: Oh, man, I am so glad you said that. I, I don't know why it, it slipped my mind for this top five, But for people who just think of Blackula as a as a joke because of that title. Yeah, it's a solid movie. It really really, is. You said it like William Marshall is great in the role. I think he needs to be discussed more often in Mm -hmm. terms of just like great cinema vampires. He's so good in that movie. Yeah, he's so suave and smooth and and he does a really good like he's so convincing
1: as that image of like, uh, you know, like Lugosi's dracula uh vampire is also kind of suave and smooth but the way he he does it too, uh william william marshall he, he he's up there he's really good and, and 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 really brings this cool like coolness and class to to, to that role i i love him in, in, in as blackula
0: no he's he's great and he was the second king of cartoons on Wee's playhouse oh nice <laughs> which I don't know why, that, that always amuses me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, also okay. in the sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream. Yeah, yeah. There's like, I think, <laughs> I think nowadays it's, it's mostly available as a two-pack. They're yeah. both good. I, I mean, yeah. I, I prefer the first one, which yeah, I think course. is kind of the obvious choice, but the second one's good too. Mm-hmm. My next pick is, uh, well, I'm going to say in the 70s, I'm going to say Dracula 1979 with Frank, uh, Frank Langella playing the Count. I'm going to be honest and say I don't know if this is my top five pick but it it's a movie that when i first saw it a couple years ago blew me away i i was not expecting it to be good at all and frank langella in the role is i mean he's perfectly cast he's so great he's he's just so great in the movie the production design on the movie everything in it looks great i keep saying the word great it, it blew me away how good it was. That it, it's kind of forgotten now. I don't know if many people talk about it. I know there's a good Blu-ray, I think, from Shout Factory, but I just don't know if people if its reputation is as high as it deserves. So I wanted to mention it here.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen this one, but you mentioned it to me, and um, I, I I've been watching a lot of vampire movies this year. I think that's theme <laughs> for <Yeah>, twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> <and> me both. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll definitely check uh, check it out.
0: All right, what's next for you?
1: So next up, I have something a little more modern, uh, Let the Right One In, a Swedish film that was uh, later remade as an American film titled Let Me In. I really love Let, Let the Right One In. I love the visuals, the look, the cinematography, the snowy setting, a vampire tale set uh, uh, with two leads that are, are, are played by children. Like I said, visuals are great. Um, it's it's dark, it's it's a little gory, uh, but it, everything really works in this movie. And, Uh, setting it in the snowy uh, Scandinavian setting really, really brings into it the kind of coldness and death that surrounds uh, the
0: movie. Completely agree. That's a really good one too. Uh, Did you see the remake Let Me In? Let Me In? I haven't seen that. Okay. No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I would, would, it's good. I would say that if Let the Right One didn't exist, it might actually be great. Yeah. But because there's already a really good version of that book, like it, it just feels a little bit, unnecessary but it, yeah. i mean it's it's a good movie on its own if you just kind of take it without trying to compare but let the right one in is really great i saw that in the theater and i remember that pool scene at the end just being an yeah. absolute stunner i know yeah it's oh it's so good okay so my next pick i'm gonna go pretty much the opposite of <laughs> the snowy scandinavian countryside and i'm gonna go with uh catherine bigelow's near dark oh nice yeah it's 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 been uh, a while i haven't seen it so long. it's been a while for me too i'm gonna pull it out like you you said like you i've been watching a lot of dry, uh, a lot of vampire movies partly for your podcast and this podcast but yeah. <laughs> it, it's really got me in the mood because i'm i don't normally think of vampires as one of my favorite movie monsters but then in the course of doing your show and this show and now this list i'm like oh there's a lot of really good ones i want to i want to revisit and it, uh near dark is one of those I just love how unsuave the vampires are, and I—I yeah. I mean, I love Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton in that movie are so good. I my only complaint is, is the lead is is a dud. I I don't really care much about the lead of that movie, but everything in about about it is just it's just very cool and kind of a a muscular vampire movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. I, I I've been wanting to rewatch that for a, a really long time um i am pretty sure i own it but I, I should pull that out too and also going uh back on what you said i wasn't i wasn't crazy about vampires and i didn't realize how many good ones there are out there until i started watching uh watching them for my podcast and for you and then like started branching out from there and say like, wow i actually i don't know why like why i never watched vampire movies there are actually there are some pretty good
0: ones out there yes uh, a lot more than I, I realized actually yeah um okay so uh What's next?
1: Uh, My next pick is 30 Days of Night. I really enjoy this movie. I love this setting as well. Set in Alaska uh, during uh, a phase of 30 days of darkness where vampires come out and do their stuff. Uh, If you like uh, graphic uh, horror movies, this one has a lot of gore. But I also really do like the cast. Um, It has uh, great actors in there. And I just yeah, I just like the the tone of this. It's based on a graphic novel, which is also really cool. And I think it really captures the the the, the spirit of that book really well.
0: Yeah, that's that's one I, I I need to rewatch. Um I saw it when it first came out on video and I've never revisited it. So I think I think this year it might be about time.
1: Yeah, it's i always forget about it and then yeah, and it comes up. I'm like, yeah, this is a
0: good movie. <laughs> I really like it. I think I think as an Alaskan myself, although far south of where that movie is set in barrow yeah Um, i'm always a little bit more critical of movies set in alaska (laughs) Um, which i i i don't live in barrow so i couldn't tell you yeah for the most part how accurate that is but i just am always like a little bit skeptical of it because it it, it's so often misrepresented in movies that's Um, funny yeah (laughs) but no i i need to watch it again i i do it's been it's been a while and i only saw it the once Okay, so for my next pick, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with one that I just think um, I think people know about it. People in the know know about it, but I just think it needs a little bit, or it doesn't need the attention. I just think it could use the attention. People should see it. I'm gonna go with Abel Ferrera's Addiction. Oh, nice. Which never it, seen it, but I only saw it for the first time last year, I think. And it, it's interesting because in many ways it feels like like a late night conversation session like you like a bunch of college students are having like it, it it kind of watching it kind of feels like staying up all night while you're in college and you and your friends are talking about all of the philosophy classes and history classes that you're taking and it's just kind of like all coming together in all these interesting or weird theories and opinions on uh you know world policy and and war and humanity and that sounds insufferable but addiction if you're in the right mood for it is kind of the best possible possible version of that it's got some sounds reg- very 90s <laughs> yes yes it is it, it's got some great black and white cinematography like it, it kind of makes you wish abel ferrara had done more horror movies because his compositions in black and white are so good and he's always he's always liked that kind of Noirish uh chiaroscuro uh i'm i mispronounced that i know but chiaroscuro lighting with really harsh shadows yeah. um and it, it just fits the addiction so well it, it, it i don't know i i watched it and i just felt like it made me very nostalgic somehow just all the like i was saying all those conversations in college yeah uh, i think it's a solid movie i think it should be checked out
1: yeah, I I, 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 it came up when I was looking at vampire movies. I, I was trying to find it for streaming, but I don't think it's available.
0: I watched it. I think I had a Stars like a thirty month of Stars trial mm-hmm. on either Stars or Showtime on Prime, and that's how I saw it. So they oh, probably wow. don't have it any. They probably yeah. don't have it anymore. Interesting.
1: All right, so my my last one is uh, Nosferatu, the F.W. Murnau version. Um, I watched this very early on as I was getting into movies and I watched it for the second episode of my podcast and, and it's great. It still stands, love the visuals. It's it's just, a, it's a great movie. I almost added the 79 version, but that's more of a recent watch. Um, and I didn't quite enjoy that one the first time around, but when I watched it again for uh, the podcast episode that Aaron was on, I really did
0: uh, love that movie. But
1: uh, yeah, it's a silent classic and it's almost hundred years and it still works and it's great.
0: Yeah, that is a classic. I've seen it a couple times. It has been years, but watching Shadow of the Vampire, which uses a, some shots from the original Nosferatu, it, it splices mm-hmm. in footage from that film. It really made me want to revisit it. So we've got that on the shelf. That's another one. I'm going to another one I'm going to have to pull off to watch. <laughs> nice. So for my last pick, and I kind of didn't, I I, I kind of didn't go with top fives just because I don't know about you, but I have so much trouble making up my mind when it comes to like narrowing things down. Yeah. And I always give the disclaimer that these are just the five I thought of that I'd like (laughs) and that I think people should check out. Yeah. And so I'm going to go with Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola version, which I think in the last 10 to 15 years, it's critical or at least audience reputation has really increased. But I remember when it came out, it was considered a huge flop and critics did not like it yeah um and i'm glad to see that that opinion has turned around on it because i've always thought it's a really compelling film it does some really great yeah. things like he does a lot of in-camera effects to kind of give it an old-fashioned look everything about the movie works except for most of the casting i think yeah gary oldman is great in that movie as dracula and nobody in the movie is bad aside from keanu reeves accent um, but everybody seems to be acting in a different style of movie, which just makes it makes it kind of feel messy, but the movie itself is really good. Like, I, yeah. I, if people out there haven't seen it and they just know that the reputation of it, of it was, it wasn't good. It's great. Yeah.
1: I actually haven't, I've never seen it, but I, I'm probably going to watch it the between now and Halloween.
0: Yeah, definitely. Hopefully. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so I believe that brings us to the end of the show. I want to thank Carlos for being here, and I want to say everybody should go check out Dial F for Film, the podcast. Uh, Without that show, I would not be doing this. It's a fun show to listen to. It's always fun when I'm on it. We should say, I don't know if I made it as clear as I should have, this is kind of a tie-in sequel show to his latest episode in which we discussed Nosferatu. Uh, We were discussing that, and I thought it would be really fun to tie it in with this and of course shamelessly uh piggyback on the list of (laughs) of his show
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well Uh, thank you so much for having me this was a lot of fun and you're always a great guest on uh on on my podcast and a frequent one too and we have some really great discussions about uh, a lot of stuff we we have a lot of great discussions about a lot of films and you're a frequent guest on there um i always have fun talking to you and this week we're doing four vampire movies for for the latest episode and one random movie, The Black Hat from 1934. Um, but yeah, it's it, was, it was a fun episode to record, like always. And yeah, check it out.
0: Aaron, Aaron's great on the podcast.
1: Well, one of I, the best guests that I have.
0: Oh, I I really appreciate <laughs> that. I I I tell you all the time. I'm I'm more than happy to do it whenever I've been on it a few times. You can go back and check those out. I would actually suggest checking them all out. I I really enjoy uh, listening to what you have to say. I enjoy all your guests. I really like the the. Um, The ones you have on with uh, Johnny and Sandy. Uh, Oh, thank you. Yeah. You guys, you guys just seem to be having a really good time. The episodes, (laughs) your episodes run long because you seem to be having a good time. But I, I like listening to a a few people drinking, it seems like all the time. Yeah. Having having fun conversations. It's always, it's always fun. So um, check out his podcast. It's out weekly and it's uh, not just the ones I'm on. You should check them all out. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. But yeah, thank you for coming. You are, of course, welcome back whenever. Um, of course,
1: let me know. And yeah, just, I, I would love to be on.
0: I know, just I know it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work putting on a show, so it can be hard yeah. to find time. Anytime you want a break from having to do too much preparation and just talk about two random movies, <laughs> you're more than welcome to come on. I am always down. All right. So that's going to be our show, everybody. Have a great rest of your week, and we will see you again next Friday incredible two-headed podcast is brought to you in part by metallic dice games Visit them at MetallicDiceGames.com for all of your dice-related needs. And enter the code 2HEADS at checkout for 10% off your order. That's 2HEADS spelled out, one word. You can follow Carlos and the Dial F Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Dial F Pod. Or on Facebook. I can be reached those places as well on Twitter and Instagram at 2HeadedPod. And I've recently created a Facebook page for the podcast. Follow along for more information and fun stuff relating to the show and the movies we watch.